everybody. Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. So glad you are tuning in. And, um, and we've, we've scored just an absolute coup to have joining with us via Skype from the great state of Florida, <laughs> um, <laughs> my new friend, David Bennett. Uh, he has just written a book called A War of Loves that um, I've, I've been tracking on Twitter for a while, it comes out. Uh, it comes out tomorrow. By the time a lot of you will listen to this, and um, I want to encourage you to check it out. I've read it and uh, took a bunch of notes <laughs> and have a lot of questions. And so, David, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. It's a it's a pleasure to be with you. Now, have you found the following to be true? That having an accent when you're speaking to an American audience gives you credibility, um, <laughs> regardless. I mean, do do you have you have you seen that yet? Because I think it's very true. Well, I actually think it's quite funny, Mike. You asked that because there's always this sense when you're doing work in the U.S., especially with your different organizations. Oh, you're not American. <laughs> like the American audience won't be interested in you. Um, and I just think that's just not true. Like. I have had many compliments about my strange blend of an Australian British it is. accent, but I have an American R. I don't know how that happened. You know, yep. how do you get an American R? It's you just become happened. a pirate. So, <laughs> you become a pirate, exactly. Well, I'm I'm an Australian, which is close enough a convict, right? So <laughs> you know, any step away. <laughs> but you've been you've been living in Europe for for quite a while now, correct? Yeah, I've actually been in the UK now for a total of six, going on over six years. Yeah. And so it, I've kind of fallen in love with Oxford and the oh UK goodness. generally. I just love it. Now, yeah. now you are, you're getting, and, and I don't understand how the, what the equivalent PhDs are over there. Yeah. Um, but explain just briefly, <laughs> you went to St. Andrews, correct? I went to St. Andrews where I studied in a great program at the Logos Institute. Uh, and I was under professors Alan Torrance and N.T. Wright. So it was a master's <laughs> degree in, wait for it, analytic and exegetical theology. Bit of a mouth, mouthful. No. But basically, no. it was just interdisciplinary. It brought everything together. So N.T. was the professor who brought in kind of the exegetical aspect oh in our goodness. lectures and things. Yeah. So it was pretty incredible to have just direct access um, to to the man himself. <laughs> now, uh, David, as, as interesting as you are, let's talk about N.T. Wright for just a second, okay? N.T. Wright wrote the foreword of the book. And so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of stay up on theology books, and I've not seen many forewords written by N.T. Wright. So what was... <laughs> Uh, if you could, if you could tell those of us who are just desperate from the crumbs that fall from his table, um, what was the what was the in on this one? Like how 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 did you if approach I, him? Yeah, I think that and T. Wright and I or Tom. Oh, you call him Tom? Oh, you even yeah. get to call him Tom? Well, yeah, I mean, oh. we're, we're we're friends, and he oh. he just we really bonded through prayer and our love of Christ. I mean. You know, when you're in the scholarly world, it's very easy to be doing it from a place of the flesh. But I think the thing I loved about Professor Wright is that he was doing it always from a place of prayer. And he said, you know, when I go home after my day having these conversations, I pray. You know, and that was just a really great connection on that level of 
you know, I have thirst for Christ and so does he. And so, you know, there was just this natural connection, but that didn't actually happen until later towards the end of the master's degree. Um, yeah, so it's actually just a personal connection more than even, you know, us sitting and talking at length about certain theological topics, although that did happen over a few, uh, you know, pizzas in St. Andrews. You um, bastard. So, yeah, you absolute maybe. bastard of a man. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Oh, my is that, goodness. Is that holy swearing there? Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. oh, that's holy jealousy is holy what that jealousy. is. Is what that is. No, that is yeah. so fun. And then... St. Andrews is in Scotland, correct? It is, and it's beautiful. <laughs> it's an incredibly beautiful place. Yeah. Okay, we're done. You, you we're done. I don't there. even want to talk about it anymore. My heart, <laughs> my heart is breaking open. Um, and then, just when you thought, oh, well, there can't be a better place to study than that, you go to Oxford, correct? And you are, you are currently living in Oxford. And I, I actually went through the campus for half a day once and just was like, this is, this is what you dream of. Um, what, oh, are you, yeah. what are you studying there? So my relationship with Oxford started at the age of 15. You can read about that in the book, just a little FYI. But <laughs> um, where God had kind of this sense of God, you know, constructing this divine conspiracy to get me there. And he did. Um, and I actually studied there before I went up to St. Andrews, but I was incredibly amazed when I was given the acceptance letter for the DPhil or PhD program there um, yeah. in Christian ethics. Uh, and uh, I'm particularly loving it because I'm able to dig down into some traditional Christian resources, um, you know, as well as obviously scripture, looking at, you know, human desire and how it links in with eschatology and Christology. And, Come on. Um, yeah, how can we construct a theological anthropology of desire? Um, you know that actually serves the church to deal with issues like same-sex attraction or right. same-sex desire, gender dysphoria, but also disordered heterosexual desire. What? So I'm, no, hold yeah. on. I thought being heterosexual just meant you were you were perfect. Oh yeah. Well, you know we've got to burst that bubble, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, my wife I'm can sorry, testify. Mike, my know, wife can know. testify. That's not that's not how it works either. Um, okay, now now let's let's stop there for just a second. Mm-hmm. Why why is this relevant to you? The the eschatology of desire. The uh, I mean that is that is um, that is a really cool topic. How did you arrive at that? Well, I think where whatever we do as Christians in terms of what we will choose to do or with our desires, we can run into a kind of mistake that leaves us either in libertinism or which is like, just do whatever you want. Right. You know, whatever I feels good, which is kind of the liberal fluff I can't stand. And then the other side, which is this kind of repression, yeah. which we see a lot of in, in a kind of, in the hyper-conservative world, you know, a double life. A dualism, um, and so that what's what I call bad asceticism. So you can have bad <laughs> celibacy or bad mar- marriages right. that aren't oriented around the future of what will happen in Christ oh, and it, the effects no. of which on. we actually come on taste in the present. So, come on, 
yeah, that's it. That's, you know. I just heard, listen, I'm imagining you and I and NT sitting at a pub (laughs) having pizza. And you just threw that out there. And NT went, "Mm mm-hmm, that's exactly right. In fact, I'm going to steal that. You know, it's a it's a possibility. It could happen in this lifetime, Mike. Just saying. <laughs> well, listen. If you have any pull over there, and you need, you know, if they open up like a podcasting program for Midwestern dorks, um, yeah. I I would be thrilled to be considered. Now, um, for you, so so the the book is again called A War of Loves, which I which really describes the book well. Mm. And so there were three kind of big decisions in uh that you talk about in the book um one is uh i think you you came out when you were 14 correct yeah do you want to tell us yeah. a little bit about that yeah so you know that kind of although it might not be typical for you as a listener but i think it's pretty typical in the lgbtqi community people say you know i kind of knew i was gay around 11 and then it took me a while to really face it you know and for me i knew i was gay pretty early on but I wasn't able to actually face it until about 14. Um, and I part of it was just like, you know, which you'll see in the opening of the book is, yeah, the, the beginning of the wrestle mm-hmm. between truth and hiding between, yeah, authenticity and being able to be real and just I can't imagine. trying to kind of cope with that privately. You know, so this is the beginning of like a war of loves that I think, yeah. All of us as human beings go through, but absolutely, I think having same being same sex attracted or gay makes it incredible, makes it even bigger and more intense. What you feel within, in terms of, I can't even imagine. Yeah, that that war of loves, yeah, or desire. So, yeah, that's really the thesis, or that's the focus of the book through my story. Um, it starts at the age of fourteen, kind of the impetus to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so. and you were you weren't from a particularly religious family, although there was sort of a God awareness budding all around you. You know, yeah, in- interestingly enough, interesting family in the sense that you know we used to laugh at our aunt because she believed in God, and yet she was so intelligent, and we thought, how is that even possible? Yeah, that kind <laughs> of that secular pridefulness that just thinks it's better than everyone else. I mean, there's Christian versions of that. I was going to say, I was going to say, I don't think that's exclusive to secular. No, oh, it's not. But we, you know, we think that just because you come, become secular, you become hum- humble. Like, <laughs> that's what, and we thought we were like humble because we were secular. I mean, it, but when I look back at it, it was just kind of like, you know, why would you ever believe in God? It's just ridiculous, hocus pocus stuff. Totally. So, yeah, it, it, that was there. And then my mother, I think just had this sense that this whole like worshiping the things that are created, like family, money, running after the mortgage, the nice house with the water view in Sydney, you know, that that just doesn't fulfill. And so she kind of had her own war of loves three mm. years before my I, I I became a Christian, and I really resented her for it, you know. Mm. And I find that an interesting phenomenon, Mike, in the sense that when people are really honest about those those existential crises that we all face, I really find it an unfortunate human, you know, propensity that we have to kind of cast assertions about those people and judge them. Yeah. Like, 
Mm-hmm. Oh no, my mom became a Christian. And I said to her, well, you have to choose between a delusion <laughs> in your head and your real son standing right in front of you. Right. Now, that's kind of understandable because I was going through my own thing yeah. with sexuality. But actually that hatred that I felt wasn't okay. And I knew that. Hmm. Um, and I was kind of disturbed by it <laughs> deep down, if I was honest, like how much I hated Christians and how angry I was. It's interesting to me that you say that, David, because I've always secretly thought, and I don't know if this is true, but I've always secretly thought the people that are out to bash religion are far more interesting and interested in it than most of the people who would consider themselves religious, thus the passion that sits behind the critique. And I've yeah. always found the, the, the most antagonistic people to be the most um, authentic disciples should they, should they choose to go that way. Um, Absolutely. Because there was always a spiritual energy there. So even around yes. spiritual conversations, like you were, you were, I'm sure you were hot against this, but, but yeah. in, in, in a way that was the opening um, <laughs> that God can use, right? Is that you were yeah. super passionate. You're not apathetic about it at all. That Who can argue with apathetic people? You were at least coming in hot uh, yeah. against mom and aunt. And even, and even N.T. Wright says, you know, in his foreword, which you can read, you know, he talks oh, I about did. how. Oh, I did. Yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> you you went on and got those pre-order bonuses online, didn't you? <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I think I think like he says in his forward. You know, I didn't realize how much my Bible stuff made other people feel mm. like what. Like I didn't understand that, and I was able to learn that from, like I think primarily through the book, which. It was an amazing compliment to, yeah. I mean, I was kind of floored at that point. But yeah. It's like, yeah can you stop talking about into your right, right now? Okay, all right. We'll stop talking. But, <laughs> but I, do, I do think his point is, is really interesting in that we are often not aware of how our stuff makes other people feel. And I'm oh, is that true? kind of trying to deeply empathize with those for whom my stuff makes them feel like, oh, so you're saying you're a gay celibate Christian. Oh, so you're saying like that's what I have to do with my life? Okay, no. Right. Um, and I'm trying in the book to actually create it, you know, write a book that, okay, you might disagree with me, but hey, come on a journey and see why I made the decisions I made and would you make them yourself? Instead of, hey, here's the position you must kind of adopt. And right. if you don't, then you're living the wrong way. Like, I just really want people to follow me on that journey and why I made the decisions I did. And, it was just one quick little anecdote. Mike. Mm-hmm. There was a girl that I met in a coffee shop. She was a chain-smoking, kind of very sharp, intelligent Croatian girl. <laughs> I uh, love it. Atheist. And, you know, really upfront about with me about everything. And so I don't understand why you're a celibate. That's weird. Weird. <laughs> um, you know, but like, I kind of like you. I'll accept you because, you know, that's what we do. Uh, <laughs> And then she's like, but I want you to read your book to me. Like, you got to read it to me. I was like, what? She's like, no, I'm like, I'm going to commit to you just reading me your whole book. And I was like, all right. And by the time we got to the end of the book, she'd experienced the Holy Spirit. She'd like, you know, gone through a lot of things as I was reading it to her, like God was kind of breaking into her life. Um, And she got to the end of the book and she said, David, now I understand why you chose to be celibate. Wow. It makes so much sense to me now. Wow. I would never have understood that if I didn't just like let myself hear your story. 
And then a week or so later, she kind of turned to me and she's like, hey, how do I become a Christian? Come on. You know, so (laughs) I don't know what it is, but it's our narratives, the stories. This topic is not, I'm so sick of it being something that's just a kind of abstract, ethical or deontological issue. Right. It needs to be embodied. It needs to be shared. It needs to be through the communion bread that we, you know, are able to bring people into the kingdom and that they can actually see Christ. So I, yeah, it's, it's, that's, it's the, it's bread. It's, it's come to the table. Let's have a conversation. Right. Um, come see my life. So, so spoiler alert to our audience. Um, yeah. David becomes a Christian and, (laughs) and, and then as, as, because one of the things that is super compelling and super, uncomfortable, I think, uh, for some people is the level of detail you get into about the, the lives and the loves and the kissings of David. And, um, and, and yet, you know, not, not done in a way that's like, like scandalous or whatever, but done in a way that's like really raw and honest. I mean, it was one of the most, um, kind of real honest accounts I've read and so it, the, the decision to be celibate was separate from the decision to follow Christ, correct? Absolutely. I mean, so just on your first point, I wanted the book to be raw and honest because I don't, I think it's in order for people like who I was in that pub before I became a Christian to really hear, they need to feel like, oh, David's a human too. He's not some kind of Puritan, right. for lack of a better word, Puritanical Christian. Um that he's not sitting high up condescending me as this kind of pure celibate floating <laughs> off into the ether, you know, singing angelic melodies while the rest of us like suffer and, right. you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, like I, yeah. I wanted it to be there to be the grit of incarnation, the grit of becoming, you know, the human well, yeah. and that God speaks through that, but doesn't speak in spite of it, but through it. Ooh. Um, and so that was a big thing for me, but the, onto your second part yeah like when i first became a christian in the pub when a girl prayed for me i'm not going to tell you too many details because i don't want to spoil the book for your audience but that's good i had this powerful encounter with the holy spirit which you can read about and it completely we're going to use a british word gobsmacked me um (laughs) perfect (laughs) bowled me over if you want to be american um and then uh, yeah but i mean the thought of gay marriage ever being wrong was never on the table. I was like, I'll accept God, but no, yeah. like gay marriage is the way for like everyone, Christians included. Well, sure. Um, what what would be wrong with committed, yeah, um, committed relationships that lead to marriage? I mean, wouldn't, I mean isn't I, that better than you know yeah. just the uh, promiscuity of both the heterosexual and homosexual communities? Absolutely, and like, gosh, there's so many other things we need to be focusing our time on. Can we just do that instead of worrying about you know this? It, it just it, it really, for me, it, you know, the whole the arguments against gay marriage, A, a came from a kind of worship of the Bible, like, um, which I think it was untenable because no one could ever live up to the standards of the Bible, and the Bible says that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's an unbiblical biblicism. Um, but also this other thing of, like, this is about you know, human flourishing and how can you tell me that the like committed self-sacrificial 
right. gay couple down the road that will be you know more moral and virtuous than most Christians. Totally. And, and, and it's true. Yeah, I know. I know yeah. couples like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And there's, you know, and and how can you say to me that God is against that? Right. Surely Paul was just talking about, you know, kind of perverse desire that comes from broken worship that yeah. happens to be same sex, right? You know, oriented or whatever. So yeah, and this whole kind of Matthew Vines discourse, although I didn't really know about Matthew Vines yeah. at that point, was this whole. But I kind of just intuitively had his view. So when I read his book, it wasn't really very surprising to me. I was like, oh, yeah, 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 I know what you're saying. Yeah. And the, like the whole idea of gifts, like, well, what if I don't have the gift of celibacy? Like, I don't have the gift. So, right. Um, and then the third thing, look at all the bad fruit that oh, yeah. the, this teaching has generated. Yep. However, the problem with that that I came to identify is it's not the bad, te- it's the bad teaching of the teaching. It's not the teaching itself. Hmm. That has generated the bad fruit. Now there is a and, there are a lot of folks that would disagree with that statement right there. That even if you did it in the best way possible, it is still an oppressive teaching. And I'm sorry, but my life is an entire contradiction of that in every single way. Boom. Like, I have so much joy, and I'm so glad that my church didn't change its view or didn't like tell me it's totally fine to go off in a gay marriage because I would never have found the bona fide God-fearing holy pleasures and ecstasies of knowing the true and living God who is manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the single biggest robbery that is happening right now through the culture war we're living in. And I, at the base of the book is this heart cry, please stop, please turn around, please listen to the living God that he rose again and he's real and he has pathways of flourishing for LGBTQI people that do not have to go against his created order and you know what he's 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 breathed out you know in scripture so i yeah it's it's this kind of passion in me mm-hmm. not because i want to make those people feel guilty and not because i don't think many of the people are trying to honestly and earnestly improve this conversation and I'm sure they've done things that have saved people's lives, you know? Yeah. So it, it's a very difficult thing to talk about because it's so nuanced. And I have so much deep respect for people who have different views and the ways that they've done things to help LGBTQI people and their friends. So I, in no way do I want to see that as a condemning thing. Yeah. But gosh, it is a heart cry. But, you, know? but, you, but you, you, you do realize how incredibly foolish that sounds, right? So even to some Christians who, um, you know, the ecstasies of God, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't even know what that means. Um, And, and for so many of us, hold on, hold on, no, I'm, I'm setting you up, bro. Don't worry. (laughs) I'm setting you up. Um, uh, And for so many of us, uh, a life void of sexual fulfillment, uh, joy isn't the word that would be used to describe that life, Right. Yeah, and so so the big question I've had I've had Nate Collins on and Tyler Chinisky, and one of the one of the pieces of feedback I've gotten, as though both of those men have told their stories that are very similar. Yeah, um, is how in the world do you make the decision to um, to to be celibate in a culture you know where every justification imaginable is already at hand um, for you to use to not to not do so. 
So what, what very specifically was it that, um, that, felt, that felt like uh, that you felt it called you into this posture, um, which is, which again, in the old days, this would just be called Christianity, but today it's called radical. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so what was it? What was it? Do you remember, the, do you remember the decision point? It's two things. It's the impossible possible of the love of God, which I encountered in that pub and has stayed with me ever since that point hmm. that I've seen impossible things become possible. Um, and if you're not allowed, if you're not allowing God to make something that you deem impossible possible, then I don't know that you're really living in faith because, you know, for the sons and daughters of God, scripture clearly says like, we can do the impossible because we worship a God of the, of the impossible. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. The other thing is the fear of the Lord. I very rarely hear anyone talking about that today. Uh, it's a bit of an old, like, oh yeah, they believed that back in the sixties, but you know, right? It's guilt. Had past, yeah. It's guilt motivation, fear motivation. Yeah, it's like, but if you actually understand it in the deep biblical sense, and you chip off all that cultural baggage, the fear of the Lord is this cleansing impartation of the Holy Spirit that helps you know God as God is. And I came to a point where I was a loving God, but my love wasn't real or it was it was in some way compromised because I wasn't fearing God. Yeah. I didn't have that awe-inspired respect that you should give to your creator. And the thing is, I couldn't produce it <laughs> either. Right, right. It had to be the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of the fear of the Lord in Isaiah 11, um, that Jesus delighted in that spirit. You know, and that cleansed me. And I realized that the kind of gay affirming church I was going to alongside another church, I realized the problem with it wasn't that people didn't really know God or love God or that they weren't part of the people of God, and, but that they didn't fear God and therefore their love was somehow compromised or not ultimately real. Hmm. Because the thing about us as human beings is we can so easily slip into idolatry. And that goes for people who have quote unquote, the correct doctrine. I'm not saying that that it, it's actually a, a, a spiritual transformation of this Holy Spirit within mm. that helps us to fear, know God as he truly is. So yeah, that happened to me. And that's when I left that gay affirming church. But the thing that's so interesting to me is there is so much I learned from that gay affirming church that you know, I don't really like the term gay affirming because I'm affirming of gay people, but Right. Um, in terms of, you know, actually affirming of following the path of gay marriage. Like, there was so much I learned in that church that was deeply valuable to my walk as a disciple. Mm -hmm. So by no means am I saying it's all just so easy to say, oh, that's the right church and that's the wrong church. But on this point, there was a lack of the fear of the Lord. And that led me to leave the church. Mm. Um and and later on in my life to become celibate, yeah. You um you frame a lot of the conversation around worship and idolatry, right? So we're all worshipers, and and one of the things that I love. So so I made a list of just notes I was taking, and I said, okay, so what what should the church do to mm. support people who are um who are living as single in a world that values marriage or living as, um, as celibate 
followers of Jesus because of their singleness or because they're same-sex attracted for whatever reason. And there were some really, there were some really strong points you made. You talked about um, the ways in which both the church community and, for lack of a better term, correct me, the mm. gay community both idolize marriage. And so yeah. how do you, how do you see that? How do you see that like in the in the heterosexual sort of church version of this? How do you see us idolizing marriage? Well, I think that what I started to detect culturally as the Holy Spirit worked on me and started to highlight my own idolatry of romantic love, that I was basically saying to God, unless you give me a happy partner, boyfriend, marriage with a you know, a Parisian apartment and a poodle and a Chinese orphan, <laughs> then like I am not like going to be fulfilled. I mean, that was my utopia, just saying. Yeah. So like, you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, there's a lot to say there. But the thing is like, what I also discovered, so I discovered one, the Christian community had this idol and B, actually so did the gay community. Mm-hmm. And so the Christian community elevated this marriage thing to a really high level in like the 70s and 80s in the purity culture and said, and judged the sexual liberation like movement, mm-hmm. you know, from the 60s and 70s and said, well, we've got marriage and kind of looked down on it and judged it. Mm-hmm. And then the equal opposite reaction is, okay, well, we're going to come and take your little trophy <laughs> and we're going to show you, we can do this thing better than you, you know? Right, right. Um, and that'll really invalidate this silly Christian faith that you hold on to, or at least the version of it that you do. Um, and so actually what I'm seeing is the gay community and the church fighting over an idolatry of romantic love and being like, it's mine, it's mine, no, mine, mine. And I'm sitting there going, um, there's a God above you that really loves you and who's going to give you way more pleasure and satisfaction and depth in your life than fighting over this idol. Mm-hmm. Like worship him, get to know him or, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he will show you, you know, the paths of life. So I think that there's this existential engagement and knowledge of God. Like when scripture talks about knowing God, it's not talking about just a rational assent to presuppositional truths. Mm-hmm. It's really talking about knowing a person and the process of knowing that person. And that is salvation. That is what, you know, the gospel is all about, is getting to know God. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's like the answer to the question of our sexual desires is found in getting to know Him. Instead of this kind of, one day I woke up and I decided I'm for gay marriage or I'm not, <laughs> you know, or yeah. I often hear Christians like, I haven't done enough thinking about that. You know, maybe I should just read a few magazine articles and then I'll make up my mind and then I'll tell my pastor what I think. And I'm just like, oh no, like this is, <laughs> this doesn't work like that. There aren't two options and God just blesses both of them. Like there is one true living God you need to get to know and you, he will reveal to you over time, you know, the way to walk in. in. And I just don't think for me, anything else would have worked either as a, someone who would be affirming of gay marriage or not. I needed to hear it and experience it directly from God. Um, mm-hmm. And people will say to me, yeah, well, I've experienced something different. Like the God I know is totally fine with this. And I would say, well, when have you let your God think something different to yourself? Right. And how do you know that this God is really the true and living God? Oh, well, uh, well, I know it because, uh, well, I've got scriptures. And I was like, well, pretty sure the scriptures lean towards a non-affirming 
or you know traditional Christian historical view. So that doesn't really work for me, you know. What what does it practically mean? Because you know Tyler brought this up to us. There's just no theology of singleness. There's no theology of friendship. There's no oh. practical way in which but that's because we aren't worshiping God. If we were worshiping the true and living God that manifested himself in Jesus Christ, then we would live like him. We would live like Jesus and our whole life would be friendship. Mm. And marriage would be some side thing that fits in with friendship. Mm. But because we've we've become kind of, sorry, to functional naturalists whilst <laughs> claiming to be Christians, then we we don't we have no we have such a terrible, you know, first of all, moral imagination. Mm-hmm. And second of all, we have a very thin um, theology of desire and friendship. And I think one of the things that I found really hard, and I think that, you know, I give this to people who think differently about this question, is that practically, in a human sense, it's very difficult in our culture and world to be celibate. Mm-hmm. Um but I do think that was the case for Jesus as the same. You know, he was a celibate Jew in a, in a society of family values. I mean, mm-hmm. if you didn't get on with it and, and propagate the seed of Abraham, you weren't doing your job. Well, yeah, you so, weren't obeying the first commandment, fill the earth. Exactly. So, I mean, have we really grasped how radical Jesus is and then how radical we're going to be if we follow him, as you said, and that we'll come back, we can loop around back to that point. How, so, so one one way the church can open itself up to conversations like this uh, is to repent of the idolatry of, of romantic love, marital love, or just the institution of marriage. Um, I, think that's, I think that's really, really, uh, really good. And I can see, I've, I've been a pastor for a while, and I've seen yeah. ways in which I've done that, or the church culture has done this, no question about it. It also seems like, you know, developing a theology of friendship, singleness, that, that, is, that is massively important. Another thing I took um, from your book that, that, that previously Nate and Tyler both have commented on is the use of, of the descriptor gay. Yeah. And, and I've heard people push back on this. Um, you should not identify that way. Why do you? Well, first of all, as you probably detect, I'm, I'm allergic to Christian dualism. So this idea that like, you know, everything about the gay community and the identity gay is this evil, licentious thing and we need to delete it as quickly as possible. You said dualism, right? Dualism, exactly. Okay, because I thought thought the accent made it sound like dualism. So I thought we were talking about vaping vaping for a second. In Australia, we say dualism. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, so dualism Uh, is something... I'll transition to an Australian accent from this point now. Um, Oh, perfect. (laughs) Um, No, totally. Christian dualism. Thank you. Um, uh, Yeah, and so for me, when I think of the word gay, what first... I'm boasting in my weakness because clearly I think that it's a fallen desire and that's why and comes from the fall and that's its origin and Genesis is, is the entry of sin into God's creation. And right would agree with me. And there you um, go again. There you go again. And then, but God didn't delete this creation. He's relaunching that project of creation as a new creation if that makes sense so it's absolutely yes the body jesus's body died 
but then it he raised that body to new life. Mm-hmm. He didn't go and destroy that body in these flames. He he raised that body to new life as a glorified, and then the body was glorified into like the heavenly tabernacle, you know, and taken, and and heaven and earth were joined together forever, you know, in Christ. So, so there's this beautiful movement, and that's where I think we then need to move in our ethics that we as Christians live in a now but not yet tension yes. between that old groaning body waiting for resurrection and that new body that we will put on. Now, what's interesting about Jesus's new body, and we see it intimately in the Gospels, is that he still had the holes in his hands and the wound in his side Mm -hmm. um, and the marks of that crucifixion that were his greatest act of worship and love towards God and his neighbor. Mm. Now, I think when we're born with certain fallen things that we could never have chosen, like Jesus was born to die Mm -hmm. on that cross. Mm -hmm. I was born to develop same-sex desires, and I did at a certain age. And then in trusting them to God, I'm in a way living out a cruciform life. What do you mean by by that? By giving those desires to him. So a cross-shaped life. Mm-hmm. That then is met with the resurrection power of God. You okay, know? what's that? What's that look like practically for you? As you can probably tell from my book, I'm quite charismatic, and I don't want people to get put <laughs> off by that word. Okay, but there is. If you don't like that word, then you no, can it's put it to the side. It's a fine word because I know in the U.S., like, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, it's pretty divisive. <laughs> there's yeah. a big discussion over that. I, I don't know, want to get stuck in it. So but dumb. what I, I <laughs> exactly what I. What I really mean by that is the grace-empowered, Holy Spirit-empowered resurrection for tasting life. Mm-hmm. So when I, what I found is as I live out this truly Christian asceticism, I actually start to become kind of addicted to the presence of God, that that is kind of what drives my self-denial. It's not denial of something in and of itself to look strong, pagan, or good, or stoic or to uh, try to belong to a a Christian culture, but it's actually self-denial towards that glory that's coming and that I have Mm. experiences of all the time in that. So I think it's really important as Christians to realize we cannot live out the Christian cruciform life without the Holy Spirit. It's just impossible and in fact, if you try it, I just don't try that at home. Like, you know, <laughs> it really has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wasn't an add-on that Jesus just kind of docked on at the end. The Holy Spirit was the whole point of his death and resurrection was that we could receive him and live the same life out. So yeah, I just think we need to realize that like when people say to me, oh, celibacy means you're oppressing yourself. It really frustrates me because it, A, it's completely just trying to misunderstand what I'm doing, but B, it's not actually what's happening. <laughs> mm. It's like a prejudice towards me instead of a meeting me mm-hmm. in the middle, you know? Mm-hmm. And you can't have a conversation if you do that to each other. And that's why I don't think we, people like myself, should do that to Christians that are in gay marriages or a pro-gay marriage. We need to meet together and talk, you know, um, and share um, in, in a respectful manner. So, yeah, that's... <laughs> In a nutshell, yeah. Um, what I would say, but practically, like if you want to get just into a nice Christian formula, because we love those. Um, <laughs> no, please, <yeah>. no. <laughs> please no, please no. 
<laughs> the first point is no, um, the, <laughs> three right, steps to need, being celibate. Yes, here we yeah. go. <laughs> and the, you know, we need clickbait articles. But the thing is, like, <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting genre. So, but we need like we need a whole revolution of ecclesiology of how we live our life out as a church. Mm-hmm. I really. I really worry about singles and married couples living by themselves all the time. Yeah. Um, and I think we need to actually create urban spaces and communities that have enough like individual space, you know, to be yourself whilst also enough community linking that you're not just living by yourself alone. Because I don't think that the Christian life can either, it can't be lived without the Holy spirit. It can't be lived in, just as an individual. Well, you make um, you make an interesting point that the idolization of romantic love in our culture has left people lonely and vulnerable in ways they they've never been before. Yeah, and I think it's also spurring on our um, obsession with porn, our mm-hmm. incapacity to look at people without objectifying their bodies, the the consumerism, or as I say, the com- you know, commodification of desire mm-hmm. so that we're actually getting fulfilled with our desires in a way that's selling us deeply short and leading us into deathly sin. And that's creating a world that's headed towards more of a Sodom and Gomorrah reality where the poor are exploited, um, you know, people are used for their bodies for, and the image of God is kind of twisted and rapaciously destroyed, you yeah. know? Yeah, and that's like the horror of Babylon in Revelation. That's, and as Christians, we're called to live out a different horizon and to be sowing to a different future. And so we have to. Repentance from sin is all about turning to a different empire, a different kingdom than the one that's trying to generate itself here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think actually all this stuff about living together in community, when people see that that aren't Christians or don't identify as Christians or whatever, and they really see community lived out, they're hungry for that. We're all mm-hmm. have this deep human need, and that will help release people from kind of going to other systems for satisfaction mm-hmm. in life. We need to create communities that are wells of the Holy Spirit where people can come and t- taste and know God. So, yeah. I mean, I could go on forever, but I really think <laughs> this is so much bigger than even just sexuality. But that's okay. Discussion. That's but that's it. That to me, that is the big point. Um, yeah. In the back half of the book, is this celibacy isn't a conversation about sexuality. Um, yeah. I mean, in that, <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, we all think of celibate. We we think of okay, so no orgasms ever again. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, well, and we immediately make it about biology and and uh, sexual fulfillment. But you you have this great line that I, I um, let me be clear. You're talking about celibacy. I'm quoting you, uh, and I love I love slash hate when interviewers do this to somebody they're interviewing. <laughs> let me quote you to you and get your reaction on you. Um, <laughs> but I but I, but this sets up you know what I think one of the really surprises uh, is of the book. Let me be clear, uh, this does not mean we are all called to celibacy or that, that it makes one a super Christian. That can turn to idolatry of lifestyle as much as marriage. But the core skills of celibacy, 
discipline, self-control, choosing a greater love at the sacrifice of a lesser. These are all key Christian skills pointing straight to the heart of Christ. No matter your calling, single married, you must grow in them to grow in Jesus. And I thought, oh, now that's that's something I can sink my teeth into. And what I mean by that is um, the the celibacy and even and even the the homosexuality conversation is is all in reference to uh, genitalia and sexual fulfillment. Yeah, and the biological processes thereof. Um, and and your point is, hey, we're all called to live in in a celibate way. If by celibate we mean disciplined, self-controlled, um, subsuming desire for a greater purpose, oh my goodness, then yes. Then, I, then I'm, by attempting to follow Jesus, I'm also living in a celibate manner. Well, if I, look, this is going to probably sound a little bit, you know, forthright, but I'm just so bored of the gay world and I'm so bored of the Christian like <laughs> world. I'm just like, this is boring. Like, I'm sorry, but like the Jesus that I met in that pub. Oh my God. But dude, like, we have fog machines and we have killer sermons and we have celebrity pastors. Come on. And I'm like, well, if you, if that's your way of putting oil on Jesus's feet, great. But if it isn't like, get rid of it. Like, <laughs> like I just, you know, if it's, that's, if, you're, if you're doing that to throw your affection on Jesus, then I'm all for it. Go ahead, spend millions. I just throw it on his feet because he's worthy. He's worthy of everything we have. You know, and even if we he might start to speak to us about how he doesn't really need fog machines, whatever he might do that. But <laughs> point is he will receive our worship no matter how, as long as it's really towards him and for him. And you know, which we're, you know, like that that lady that broke that alabaster box. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's really coming from that place, Jesus will receive it. And that's why you can go to Smells and Bells and you can go to Big Folk Machine and you can go to Quiet, you know, to do meditative yep. and you can go to Lutheran and, and he will meet you. <laughs> right. If, yeah. So I think like for me, I'm just bored. I want a greater horizon for my life and for other people's lives that just, oh, just runs towards a love and runs towards satisfaction that doesn't reduce it to sex and doesn't delete sex, but that just is so much bigger. I just, I get bored of this fight over marriage. I'm just, you know, (laughs) I'm unsatisfied by it. And I want, and I'm satisfied and have been satisfied by God's love and this greater horizon he's introduced Mm. me to. But the more I just think about sexuality all the time and marriage and get stuck in that debate and the idolatries on both sides of A and B and Y and X. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the more I lose this beautiful horizon of God's love that I first was given, and I never want to lose that. And I want as many people on this planet to know it um, and to be transformed by it. So that's why I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. That's the motivation behind it. So let me, so let me close with this. First of all, I mean, thank you. Great, great stuff. Um, different from other interviews I've heard you give. So I love that we got, we got into some, some uh, of the deeper waters. Um, I just, I love that because there, there's Thanks, some really, Mike. really good deep stuff in here. How do you, cause I was thinking about this last night as I was prepping, I'm like, okay, so this is my third, the third person my audience will hear from 
I was walking a similar journey. And, and for different reasons, the stories are different, it looks different, and they're different nuances. So I, I think it's all important. But how does this, and this was from Nate Collins, how does this not, how does your story not get weaponized against people who where you were, you know, several years ago? Um, because of somebody, it sounds like, and tell, please tell me if I'm wrong in this, but it sounds like had before the pub experience, had somebody simply said to be Christian is to be celibate. And maybe you thought that. Um, uh, you may not have responded uh, the same way. Would you agree? Oh, like, would would I have agreed when I'm in that pub that to be yeah. Christian as a gay person yeah. means I have to be celibate? Yeah. Uh, no, no. <laughs> I'd be like, whatever. Like, that's, that's, that's repression. Right. But that's because I had the... I hadn't been transformed by the gospel and I hadn't tasted that new horizon and I hadn't believed a deeper anthropology, a deeper way of understanding what it means to be human. Um, I had signed up to that commodification of desire, even if I desperately didn't want to be in it. I yeah. was. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so. But how do we really- keep people from weaponizing your story and others to hurt people who are still in process? Exactly. Well, one way that I have avoided that weaponization is to continue to identify in the gay community Mm. and to insist that I'm actually part of it. Um, uh, And that, you know, I don't see the word gay to mean my sexual ethic has to be mainstream secular. Mm. But the word gay means that my orientation is towards people of the same sex. So that's not to make it my ultimate identity, which is the annoying thing on the, on the <laughs> right of the conversation. It's yes. like, you're making it your identity. I'm like, wow, thanks for rolling over this morning and just having one thought about what you know this might have to do. I've lived with it my whole life. Maybe you could trust me that I'm really not. Um, hmm. And that I've done a lot, like I'm living celibately, I'm giving this to God. It's not my ultimate identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an important part of our humanity is our sexuality. Um, it goes right to the basis of, you know, the image of God that God made us male and female in the beginning. And so it's not like other things that are fallen, like alcoholism or, you know, yeah. these things that it gets equated to. It's, yeah. it's a, a complex entanglement of our originally good image of God with the fall and its effects on our desires. That's just a quick little add-on. Yeah, and yeah, secondarily, yeah. it's, you know, it's that prejudice I talked about that, mm-hmm. oh, he's celibate, so he's just repressing himself. So I, I think that me asserting that I am actually part of the gay community as well as the Christian, but that I'm choosing to live those desires out in a different gospel-oriented biblical way is the kind of resistance to weaponization Mm. and the resistance to weaponization that I think most resembles Jesus's resistance to him being weaponized Mm. by zealotry against Rome, by the Pharisees and Sadducees, Mm. by, you know, all sorts of different forces in his society that would seek to manipulate who he was for their cause or purpose that was actually carnal and wasn't really from the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and so good. I'm trying to imitate Jesus in the way that I do this um, right. so that the church can be who the church really is supposed to be. And 
that people encounter the real Jesus, you know, um, in me and in others like me. So, yeah, I think, but that's not to say that there isn't an idolatry that celibate, gay, side B, mixed orientation marriage, <laughs> historically Christian people <laughs> mm-hmm. fall into. Mm-hmm. It, we can fall into our own obsession with, you know, friendship being mm-hmm. the source of love, or mm-hmm. we can try to create false solutions um, to it that and become obsessed with that. And that becomes our whole like self. And if you don't agree with it, then, you know, and I don't, you never hear about Christ or Jesus or the kingdom anymore. It's just all about sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, now, look, it's really hard for that not to happen in our current culture where people yeah. are being attacked on all sides by everyone. Yeah. And people get turned in, in 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 theology. We talked about we talk about the incurvatus in say being incurved upon ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think the temptation with this conversation of sexualities is curving ourselves inward to look at our own desires all the time, instead of setting our mind on heavenly things, on Jesus, on 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 following Him. So that's yeah, that's what I'd say is we need to be mm-hmm. careful about mm-hmm. that incurving effect of just focusing on our own desires and not focusing on God's solution um, in Christ. That's good. All right. One last, one last thing. And I saved the most controversial question for last. Um, Coors Light. Have you ever had Coors Light? I haven't. Okay. Why not? I, it's an American uh, institution. It is the king of beers in America. I'm not really very good with beer and football. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's stereotypical. I know I was at the airport on the way to Florida and there were like three very straight gentlemen, one who really went to the gym way too much, one who didn't go at all, and another who's somewhere in between of all different kind of backgrounds. And they were watching American football. And I mean, they could have had a cause light in their hand and they're just making all sorts of like jumping up and down and like dancing. And I was like, wow, I'm so gay. Like, <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> get this <laughs> okay <so ritual. laughs> well i like first of all i like that you associate Coors light and football that's that's an association i want you to keep okay um okay. i i personally want to use the the platform to advocate for Coors light because i think it's very very underrated and underappreciated particularly <laughs> by uh europeans yeah. Who think that the only beers have to be called weird names and be very dark? I think I, I love think, Belgian beer. That's of the exception do. to the rule. Uh, of course you do. Yeah. <laughs> well, now that we've settled that, I'll edit that answer out so that you just simply say, Yes, I've had it and it's great. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna edit that. So don't be shocked. All right, David. Thank you for your time. You're in a hotel room between gigs, uh, and not by gigs, I just mean interviews. You're doing a lot of press, all that stuff. So I'm, I'm super grateful for how exhausted you must be and you know, spending some time with us regardless. Again, the book is called A War of Loves. Um, you can get it anywhere, obviously, books are sold. Um, how, how do people find you on social media, my friend? What's your Twitter handle and uh, where are uh, you on at, Facebook? At David A.C. Bennett. Um, so David AC Bennett, so it's D A C B if you like. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Facebook, and I'm pretty active on social media. I just say to your listeners, like, I'm really up for a conversation. You know, let's keep this not polarized. Let's keep this a good conversation where yeah. we can learn one from another. Yeah, and 
please come and follow me and let's let's talk. It'd be great. And thank you for having me, Mike. It's I've loved um, tuning into some of your podcasts in in, oh. part, in the past. So thanks. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I didn't realize. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So so here's what I need you to do, my friend. And I'm going to say this publicly to hold you to it. I need you to go back uh, to England and go to NT Wright. Just call him up and say, Tom, listen. <laughs> There's a podcast you got to be on, okay? That's all yep. you need, bro. I will buy right. 10 copies of the book right. to hand out. Um, that, But do I have your word? Uh, you have an email sent to him saying... <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I'm totally ah! kidding. No, no, no. Don't do that. I'm just trying to be obnoxious. No, no. no I mean, you're great. He's I, a very busy man, so... No. You know, the fact he even gets back to any of my emails <laughs> or has blessed me with this forward is, is a miracle in of itself. So. I know. I'm just making fun of myself for how much crush <laughs> I have on him. That's all that is. All right, my friend. Um... Uh, my brothers and sisters, thank you for tuning in. So grateful to be a part of your life. And thank you for um, listening and your feedback and all of that stuff. So until next time, my friends, thank you. Thank you.